Hey, Rabbi, what do you think is one word that would just get everyone in your congregation uh, really, really uncomfortable in their seats? What's one word you could call them that might get everyone uh, on the edge of their seats and maybe even walk out? Uh, I think if we were to, you know, raise the issue of racial reconciliation, Mm -hmm. that would be probably one of them. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Or, or maybe insinuating that, you know, I think you guys are all a bunch of racists and we all need to talk yeah. about that. Right. <laughs> so it's like the work today is I think that everyone is trying to figure out how do we have these conversations in our faith communities without people being like, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to talk about this. I did this. You know, I remember in boarding school, we had to go to constant these anti-racist, you know, workshops. I had to do it in seminary. And then after a while, you know, you start like, are you serious? They have bad taste in the mouth and it's just so volatile on, on the news media. Right but now. I also wonder too, you know, how much of it too is, is, is also based on prejudice, which then leads to right racist, you know, ideology or, or thoughts in one's heart. I mean, how often have you heard the phrase, I'm not a racist. I have a black friend. Well, yeah, and, and that means nothing. It doesn't say anything. Right, 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 right. It's, it's so it's interesting you say that because we're going to bring a guy on today, a pastor out of North Texas, who one of the first thing he does when he starts this work of racial reconciliation is really start with just the definition of racism. What yeah. is the difference between racism and prejudice? Because that helps in the work that he does. And so he just flew in from North Texas all the way through um, the airline known as Zoom. And uh, he is here with us. Um, he is not the 70s classic rock band, but he is a racial <laughs> reconciliation forced to be reckoned with, one of love and compassion. It is Reverend Steve Miller from the United States Christian Christian Leadership Organization, the USCLO, who's with <laughs> us today to talk about how does he start these conversations. He has great success in having these conversations. It gets people vulnerable and listening to each other. Um, it's really quite wonderful. So, Reverend Steve, are you are you ready to come on a priest and a rabbi and, and give us the goods? I am ready to come on, man. Let's do it. All right. Let's so make it happen. We- we got an exciting hour ahead of you. And then before you do anything, subscribe to this podcast. So whether you're on Apple Podcasts or uh, Stitcher, hit the subscribe button. It really helps us. We want to share this, especially this episode. There's going to be a lot of people that you know who are saying, how do I begin this work? How do I start these conversations? This is the podcast that now you want to send to your friend and share it. Leave a comment. Uh, give us your feedback on it. Um, you'll see in the show notes, too, how you can get in touch with Reverend Steve Miller to do this work, um, either at your organization, whether it's secular or faith-based. All right, gentlemen. Let's get ready, grab your Bible, grab your Torah, and let's get ready for another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. A priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi! The opinions you hear from on this show do not represent WSTU, since they probably regretted over-allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Hayam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, grab your Bible or Torah, and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a rabbi.
Good morning, good morning, everyone out there in Stewart, Florida, and everywhere else. This radio broadcast is reaching, and for those of the future who will be tuning in through a podcast from here all the way to Yemen, just so you all know, Rabbi and I are huge in Yemen. This is <laughs> uh, from St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Florida, and uh, next to me is probably, I would say, we could probably confidently say, is the most handsome, dashing rabbi this side of the Jordan River. Um, so Rabbi Durbin, your hair is out of control this morning. You did not go for the really clock. You just went for, I just got out of bed look, but you do it well. And I am jealous because I took 10 minutes on my hair this morning. Good morning. Now, 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 now when we say 10 minutes, are we saying 10 minutes or is it actually like, you know, 90 minutes? No, it was actually hair is three minutes. I was being hyperbolic just for for for, for reaction here because I like to react. I like to get reactions out of your rabbi. This is a show about a priest and a rabbi, and, and people like it when we when we when we nab at each other. So your hair is usually the first thing we take a shot at. I appreciate it. Yeah. So listen, man, you you must be exhausted. You are in the middle of the Jewish Super Bowl, or towards the end. Yeah, we're 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 nearing the end. Um, you know, we just finished Rosh Hashanah, and uh, you know, on Monday, Monday night, we finished Yom Kippur, and tonight we'll come in Sukkot, and that will be the next seven days, and then we we end Sukkot with uh, starting our cycle all over again with some Katora, as we rejoice around God's law and 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 our sacred scriptures of the Torah, um, and we start the cycle. We read uh, the end of Deuteronomy, and we rapidly re-roll to. Bereshit to Genesis, and we start our cycle all over again. Yeah. So well, I remember, I because you know, you know, on Facebook, it, it gave me one of those updates that said, you know, three years ago to this day, or maybe it was five years ago to this day, um, it, it put up the Sukkot um, uh, memory of my wife and I visiting you at your crib, and you had everyone over, you had us over, and you know, you you had the the yes in the backyard, yeah, and uh, that was awesome. So. Uh, well, 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 it's good. It's good. Well, I'm sure you're, you're, you're exhausted, you're tired, but you're so excited for today's show because um, we have a man today who's going to solve our country's problems probably within the next 35 minutes. Uh, we won't even give him the whole hour to do it. Uh, we'll, we'll set a timer now and at the 35th minute, everyone in their car at home will be going out and spreading the love. Um, now, we, so we, we, today, you know, every try, every week we try to make a stab at how do we make this world more reflective of, of, of God's, God's vision for us all. Um, and we bring in a lot of different people who stir the pot. And uh, uh, today we are, and some people are some serious fighters for justice. Um, and today we were, we're going in a direction of, of a serious fighter for justice, but one who has tried it on both sides of the coin, one who has been very aggressive uh, and saying, I, I need justice and almost punishment for this. Uh, and, and, um, and, and, and the way I can represent that is through a change in a bank account, right? We will we'll win some money. Um, but, but now he's learned that I want changed hearts. I want hearts to be changed. And so when I'm seeing injustices in, in our country, and I'm seeing injustice, particularly racial injustice, he goes, what up? It feels like God is really calling him to change hearts. And the only way you could do that is through love and compassion. You, you can't do it with a baseball bat of justice. Um, right. You have to come with soft love and really, really loving one another. Can you imagine that? You know, <laughs> a Christian radio show that we love will lead the way. Uh, we hear it. It sounds trite. But we have a man today who has 12 years of experience doing work of racial reconciliation. He is the founder and president of the USCLO, which is the United States Christian 
um, leadership organization, which has other organizations within it. Um, his name is Steve Miller, but not that Steve Miller. He is Pastor Steve Miller, <laughs> all the way out of North Texas. And we are just honored to have you on our show today, my friend. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for inviting me on. I've been waiting for this for the last couple of weeks. I got up early this morning, started preparing for it. Say, hey, man, I'm ready to go. We wish you all um, on air and on the podcast would be able to see this because when I first jumped on this morning, um, I thought Reverend uh, Steve uh, was wearing a bathrobe. And <laughs> I thought it was just sort of like this bravado of like, hey, man, I'm, I'm in my I'm in the element and I'm just going to wear a bathrobe to the radio show. <laughs> uh, but really, you know, he just has this really awesome, uh, very full white sweater. So yeah. is, is it cold out there in North Texas? It is cold. It is cold. It's about what forty-seven, something like that. If you can, if you consider that cold, we do. But yeah, it's cold. Yeah, out that's here. cold. That's cold. Yeah. <laughs> we have thin skin now as Floridians. Um, all right. So, Pat, Pastor Miller. So, you, you're the president, and founder of the USCLO. I don't. Yep. They, they tell us what this really means that the United States Christian Leadership Organization. What are you guys all about? Well, the United States Christian Leadership Organization. You know, if you could say it in just you know a few words, it's an organization that wants to organize the people of God and the Church for Racial Reconciliation. Okay. And I came up with the name, actually, uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership <laughs> Conference, right. United States Christian Leadership <laughs> Organization, I got as close as I could to Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr.'s organization without copying it, you know what I mean? Because it's for Christians, you know, Christians right now are very underutilized asset in this okay. struggle. And so we want to bring them back onto the playing field. That yeah. is a that is a great statement. Very underutilized. And that's a very diplomatic way of putting it too, <laughs> since Sunday is still the most segregated day of the year. Um, so, okay, so tell me, you know, there's, there's uh, I read the article in Christianity Today about the work you've been doing and, and yeah. really with your history. Uh, what really caught me is that you're, the, the use of listening that you do in your work of racial reconciliation. Um, you want to listen. You don't want to sit here and just teach and tell people. And I'm telling you, all of us, I think religious leaders have been reading the books and going and looking at people who lead seminars and workshops um, and these seminal books, right? Mm -hmm. and, and like one of them being like, how to be an anti-racist. I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell you this right now. If I said, well, I'm going to do a book study at my church for how to be an anti-racist, I, I think it's a lot of people are going to be like, I, I don't want to show up for that. Not because they're racist, just because they're going to be like, I've done that. I had to do that at my corporation. We had to go to some anti-racist workshop. It was just like, ugh, because they're telling you how you should be thinking and then insinuating that maybe you're racist. And we all know that just doesn't really go well. Right, right. That's so, right. That's so right. I was just, you know, you are taking a very different approach um, to how you begin this work of racial reconciliation. Um, and and let's, let's, let's step back even further. Can you explain to our audience what exactly does racial reconciliation mean? Because that's become a kind of a hot word within the religious world. Oh, that's good. I, man, you hit it right out, right out of the park on your first question. Right out of the park. First of all, when you hear the term racial reconciliation or the phrase racial reconciliation, it's really a bad phrase. Mm, really? You know, it okay. has a bad connotation. You know, it rubs you the wrong way right off the bat. So whenever you hear that term, people automatically shut down when they hear the term. You know, and, and as a matter of fact, when I when I first realized that I was uh, in the office of a pastor here in my hometown and we were talking about racial reconciliation and he mentioned to me, he said, Steve, that that term has a bad connotation to it. And I started thinking about it and I said, you know what? 
you're absolutely right. So I said, you know, so I started thinking about it and I went back home and I opened up my dictionary, my Riverside Webster's edition, my Webster's uh, dictionary, the Riverside edition. That's the one I use. You might use a different edition, but that's the one I use. And this is the one um, that I take most of my definitions from. So if you open up your dictionary and it doesn't say that, it's probably because you don't have the Riverside edition. But if you get the Riverside edition, it's going to tell you. Well, anyway, I opened up the Riverside edition. And I looked up the word reconciliation. All right. And when I read the definition, I was totally and completely floored. And I'm like, wow, this is a sweet word. It's a very compassionate word. But people assume that they know what the definition is and probably whatever they're thinking, the intuition for what they're thinking is totally and completely wrong. But when I opened it up and I looked at it, man, I just smiled. And, and it's, it's a two-part definition to it. And when I, when I tell you the parts to it and when I finish, you're gonna smile, right? Reconciliation means, first part, to become friends, Second part, again, to become friends again, which implies that you used to be friends at some point. Right. Something happened in a relationship. And now you need to bring that relationship back together and reestablish it to become friends again. That's what it means. And so when you look at it like that racial to become friends again, it's just totally (laughs) and completely different. It That's why you name all your workshops racially become friends again workshops. Racial become <laughs> friends again workshops. That's right. To become friends again. And that's but, where but, it, but it's 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 interesting. It's interesting what you mentioned, which is that it all boils down to one very simple um uh, very one very simple thing, which is it's about relationships. Yeah. Right. That's you right. know, to come back again or to recognize in some way the 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 returning, uh, which I think is a, you know, it, it's especially for us as Jews, um, there is mm. nothing much more important, especially in the season we're in, mm. as we just finished Rosh Hashanah and certainly just finished Yom Kippur, mm. our season of returning, going back to those relationships that have mm. been strained or have been challenged in some way and try and make and rectify those, those, those challenging or those broken relationships to come back to it. But what has, um, but it, is there criticism of that though? That that um, when were we ever really truly a united tribe on this earth? Hasn't there always been an issue that we get try that we we tribe up? Um, and you're talking about racial reconciliation. I could see someone of of color saying like, when what what are we going back to? It's never really been great. Have you ever ever heard the, heard that pushback? Like, if, you, if you're being reconciled, I can see like from a theological perspective, we're going back to God's image of all of us. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to be reconciled to. Mm, we're that's good. Not back to Eden. Um, that's good. In the image of God, but I can see someone. If I try to say that to someone to a person of color in the states, they'd be like, "Well, when was it great? You know, when when were we really good friends? What, what what's the image you're giving me to show that we got to get back to?" Um, mm. But I don't know if you have you ever heard anyone push back. No one's pushed back on that. But if, if people study their history, when you look at the silk routes, the trade routes between um, Europe and China and the Middle East and Africa, man, there was trade going on on these routes everywhere. You know, this black white thing is a new convention. I mean, this is I mean, this stuff is made up. This stuff is contrived. 
This stuff is our legal definitions. I mean, this just goes back to the 1600s. Before the 1600s, there was a lot of time in between there. I mean, thousands of years. So people get stuck in, 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 in this rut. They get stuck in this idea that this is a new phenomenon. You know, and it is a new phenomenon, but they don't think that phenomenon extends between there. I mean, the routes to Africa, the routes to the Middle East, the routes to... Asia. There was a lot of trade going on. There was a lot of peace going on. There was a lot of learning going on mm. back during those times. And there, and, and out of that peace, you know, became friendships, you know, but, but as plagues hit Europe, as, as, as they started transitioning from, from the feudal system into a capitalistic system is when all these things started to happen. That's when all of this, this, uh, 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 turmoil started to happen and people started looking for routes for to 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 unleash their trade and that's how the united states came into being because there's an outlet for people wanting trade and so on and so forth and then from that this whole this whole um um, contribution this whole contriveness of this race thing and it's just brought us in our imagination should take us way beyond the 1600s so so um you know, Reverend Reverend Steve, just to just to kind of backtrack a little bit and just to yeah. go uh, a little bit personal, what yeah. what brought you to this moment? I, I mean, you know, how how did you grow up? Was was religion and um, faith? Was it was it was it something that you have always been committed to? You know, what what what, what, what what's your background that brought you to you know where we are today? Okay, okay, so. There, it, it was a process. It wasn't one single event. It was all of these events working together that really culminated into this classroom event that happened. But from the moment I touched the ground, from the moment I came out of my mother's room, I came out into a very, very strong religious family where there's a religious environment from the very beginning. My grandfather was a Pentecostal church preacher and a Pentecostal church ministers. So he would go all over what we call the Arklatex. The Arklatex is a region of Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Arklatex, Arkansas, Ark, La, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Texas. And he would travel that whole region planting churches. And everybody in my whole town knew my grandfather. And so as we were coming up, we knew exactly what was expected of us. I remember when I was in high school, I had one of the teachers approach me and said, hey, you know, I remember your grandfather, you know, um, Pentecostals didn't allow women to wear pants back in the 60s and 70s, you know. And so that was a very big deal. So when integration came, my aunt became a cheerleader. And now she's a cheerleader wearing these very short skirts. My grandpa wasn't going for that. And so he came up to the school, to the high school and said, my daughter, she is not wearing those short dresses in front of anybody, you know, but the principal got a chance to talk to her, talk her down. And this particular teacher remembered that story. And so when I got to high school 18 years later, she's still there and she tells me the story of my grandpa. So my grandpa's legend looms very large in East Texas. And so People know him and they expected us to be a certain way and we became that certain way. So when I was a kid, two, three years old, when my mom went to work in the morning, she would take me to my grandpa's house and he would babysit me 
um, every day for the, for a couple of years. And I would watch him till his garden. I would watch him take care of the horses. You know, he would take me to the store and we'd sit down and drink soda together. He'd buy me candy. We'd talk. We'd just have a great time. So my grandpa is the single, the single um, biggest influence on me and on my life. So with that said, he passed away in 1974, about the same time that I was entering kindergarten. I entered kindergarten in 1974, so I was three classes removed from integration in my hometown. And so I remember going into the doctor's office when I was two, three years old. I remember it being a black side of the waiting room and then out the door and around the hallway was a white waiting room. So I remember that. That's the only memory that I have from segregation, but I do remember that. But our schools integrated in 71, so I'm 74, the third class. And so when we go to kindergarten, okay, when we go to kindergarten, you have to, you have to, I got to set the context on this. My hometown, Henderson, Texas, is a very rich town. It's a town of 13,000 people, but as you know about Texas, oil is huge here. Not only is oil huge here, coal is huge here. Not only that, lumber is huge here. And not only that, the manufacture of bricks. Okay, the manufacture of brick. And see those, that the truth, the manufacture. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those industries that I just named. Um, um, created billionaires in my hometown and created multiple people in excess of uh, 500 million. I mean, the brick plant in Henderson, they sold it in 1983 for $435 million. Mm. Okay, that's in 1983. So how many billions of dollars was that, was that in 1983 money? So I went to school with the children and grandchildren of these billionaires and these $100 millionaires, right? And I also went to school with extremely poor people. My kindergarten backed up to the projects, okay? It backed up to the projects. So students who were in my kindergarten class that lived in the projects would come through the back fence of the kindergarten and walk through the playground into the classroom. But the billionaires and the $100 million dollars they would fly to school in helicopters, mm. okay? And then they would walk through the playground into the class. And when we got to that classroom, you'd have black, you'd have white, loved ones with color, loved ones without color, the billionaires, the poor people, and every income stream in between. And we were all together, sitting on that floor together in Mrs. Rowell's kindergarten class together. And we learn how to talk together. We learn how to communicate together. We learn how to play together. We learn how to love each other. That's and those relationships about. went from kindergarten all the way up through my senior year in high school. And so many people in America do not get an upbringing like that. Right. Okay. And that's the upbringing that I want to share with America. Because America, we still live in a highly segregated society, especially in the cities. Loved ones with color go to class school together. Loved ones without color go to school together. You know, and just to put it in layman's terms, white kids only go to school with white kids. Black kids only go to school with black kids. And Hispanic kids only go to school with Hispanic kids. So there is no relationship building or communication skill level built between the races. They're, they're estranged from each other. 
So when things like this happen in the country, there is no relationship or experience to draw from. And as you know, a matter it's, of it's, fact, go ahead. You know, and, 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 and Reverend Steve, you know, it, it's interesting because um, Israel had tried the same thing um, this probably many years ago, but it was in the north in, um, you know, a, a very famous city called Haifa. Yeah. Uh, and what they did in Haifa was they had uh, Jewish children as well as Arab children, um, and largely it was Christian Arabs. Yeah. Uh, who come together for after school programs and learn English together. So you mm-hmm. would have Jewish boys and Jewish girls and Christian Arabs and, and boys and girls that would sit next to each other. And mm-hmm. such an amazing program because it would it would break down those stereotypes and those barriers and kids see each other. Because I think we see this today even with our own children. I mean, yes. my kids, my kids don't see color. They don't see race. They see people as, you know, person to person. People, right? And and you know, it's interesting. At what point in our lives do we suddenly have those rose-colored glasses that see people differently? And why can't we go back to that to that childlike vision of they're not black, they're not brown, they're not red, they're not yellow, they're not white. They're that's my friend. That's my you know peer. That's you know where. Why have we gone to that to that place? And I think that's right, right, right. I, I think we just answered that original question of what are we reconciling to? And you're making those friends again because it is, it definitely is possible. And, and it's, um, but it's, it's, we, we do live in a, at some point they mature into a society that hasn't really fully, that doesn't embrace that. We have a pretty fractious society. So we start learning things. And um, so tell us, you know, um, so, so you have this great founding, and I can see there's a passion inside of you. But how do I bring people back to that? Um, and there was a time when you were fighting for racial justice, but yeah. you weren't really fighting for, like, there was a different approach you took. And can you just tell us really quickly about that before we move on to what is the work you're doing today, which is very different? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I started, I was, a, I was a corporate banker when um, – I got called to this work by God. And it was a very audible voice. It's that still quiet voice that God speaks to to us in. And it was very loud to me. It says, I called you to racial reconciliation. And, you know, from that calling to the very moment that I entered the work was 10 years. Okay. It wasn't something I was trying to get to. I didn't know what to do. I told God, hey, man, I'm not going to do this. And and I didn't try. I Shoot, I went off to become a corporate banker. And that's what I became. and, And I was happy doing that. But as I got involved in this work and um, there was a particular school district that I was fighting against who had rampant racism running through um, the system. I mean, people were literally being abused, you know, and, and if you would read some of the stories, you can, as a matter of fact, you can probably find one of our stories online if you go to this particular court case and read it and you'll be shocked at the things that you read. But while I was out doing the work, different people would see me in the community. And it was very difficult living in a community community while doing this work because of the stares you get. You know, when you're fighting racism, people call you a racist. And you know, it's, it's amazing how that happens. But I ran into an old man who had just written a book, actually. And um, I, I was at a hotel and he was doing a book signing. And um, I went to him and I bought one of his books and we got in a conversation. He asked me the type of work that I do. And I told him that I do racial reconciliation work, civil rights work. And he said, point blank, young, young man, if you do this work from a place of hate, you will destroy yourself. Okay. I heard him. Didn't really pay attention to him. 
He's an old man for crying out loud. He don't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know my heart. He doesn't have any idea the kind of work I'm doing. But it stuck with me. Okay, it stuck with me. I always thought about it. If you do this work from a place of hate, you'll destroy yourself. So as I was in the battle with this school district, I mean, and it was a battle. It was a six-year battle. I mean, we were knocked down, drag out. You know what I mean? I was taking these people through the ringles, ringers. They were taking me through the ring. They had their attorneys after me. I had mine after them. I put them on the news. I put them on the radio as much as I could for the terrible things that they were doing to people. You know, I was trying to hit them as hard as I could. And so the superintendent of that particular school district, you know, I grew not to like him. As a matter of fact, I didn't grow not to like him. I grew to hate him. And he drove a white pickup truck. And I started to notice that whenever I was driving around town, whenever I saw that particular brand of a pickup truck, I would get totally and completely mad. I would fume. I was so angry. And this happened every time I got to where I thought about him. I couldn't get rid of his face. I literally wanted to strangle this dude. I, that's how upset I was. But I began to recognize that this is a problem. The, the, the voice of the, of the man started coming back to me. If you do this from a place of hate, you will destroy yourself. So I called a friend of mine on the phone. She was a principal in one of the schools. And I said, hey, Mrs. Moore, I said, I got a problem here. I'm, I'm beginning to recognize that I hate the superintendent. Because every time I see a truck like his, I boil. If I see his face, I boil. If I think about him, I boil. And I said, that's not me. I said, what do I do? What do I do? She said, Steve, I think you need to pray. And I think you need to fast. Okay. And I said, okay. So I did a three-day prayer and fast. And the only thing that I ate for those three days was um, was peanuts and I drank orange juice. So orange juice and peanuts were the only things that I consumed over a three-day period. And it was rough and it was tough, but I made it through it. And at the end of that three days, that hate rolled off to of me and I have never been back to that same place again, never. So as I do this work, I don't hate anymore. As I do this work, I just love. And I continued that regime of fasting and praying just to protect myself, just to make sure that I stayed in a realm of love. As a matter of fact, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, whenever they went into an action, whenever they did something public, whatever, whenever they did something that they, that they considered a direct action, they always had a time of consecration where they fasted and prayed for God's direction, for God's protection, and for the spirit of love to come forth. And so I continued that, and it became a part of who I am. Mean, it's already a part of who I am, but it reinforced who I was. Mm. You know, so we are and, going to hear about, you know, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to see now what the second chapter of this work that Reverend Steve's been doing and how he approaches this with so much love and compassion how this led to change hearts and the pleasure of the work, the great work that he's been doing about trying to have this conversation that many people do not want to have. But Reverend Steve is able to invite him into it um, and allow the spirit, the spirit of love to be working through him. So uh, we'll be right back with part two of a priest and rabbi here with Reverend Steve Miller. 
and um, and then also um, if you caught the, if you missed the first half, just check out the podcast, which you can get on any podcast platform right after the show. We'll see you in just a minute. You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review, five-star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 772-220-9788. That's 772-220-WSTU. Hey, everyone. This is Father Christian here on A Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And and I want to uh, let you know that I have uh, started a uh, YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian. And you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday, I drop a new episode. And it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share, uh, put on the notifications so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked, though, was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center. And so you can call if you're looking for a counselor or someone to be there for you during a challenging time. And you can call the church at 772-287-3244. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. And welcome back to part two of A Priest and a Rabbi. My name is Father Christian Anderson here in Steerage, Florida, and I am here with also the best hair on a rabbi you have seen, the side of the Jordan River. When you put the water <laughs> of the River Jordan in your hair, it does amazing and beautiful things. So you can buy that at <laughs> rabbiwaterhairtreatment.com. Uh, Would you do something for me? Or, 
Yeah, yes, and we'll get some for Reverend Steve as well. Uh, today, our guest uh, and a priest and a rabbi is uh, Reverend Steve Miller. And the first half, we talked about what led him to this work of racial reconciliation. Um, and he, he showed that how um, he, he approached it in one way, um, that it was a little more aggressive and um, was being told, was told by a very old, by a very um, wise man who said, if you do this work from a place of hate, it will kill you. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a, just a great, great thing yes. for us all as people of faith. If you're ever doing this work from a place of, of hate, <laughs> you know it's not of God anyhow, but it will kill you. It's toxic. Um, yeah. So Reverend Steve, you made a shift and you started to come from a place of love. How did your ministry start to change from that point? Well, um, I, we started the Oral History Project, and that's a listening project. And we discovered, and, and I discovered it purely on accident. It was a revelation by God, actually. Um, when I was in, 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 in that town fighting with that school district, um, as we interviewed people to get their stories, I noticed they would tell their story over and over and over and over again. Even after I've heard the story, they tell it for 20 minutes, continuously and I would get mad and say okay I got it let's go to solution but in there I started recognizing that as they told their story they were healing okay you know they were they were providing a space whereby they would share their story and and, and, and release it which creates a which creates an opening in their heart and then God can come in and feel that broken place right and so the listening you know, part comes from me, the sharing comes from them, but where it really can open up for loved ones without color is how listening for them is the key to their healing as well. Listening to these stories is the key to their healing, right? And so I'm going to bring together two concepts to help us with that, right? Um, the first one is, is, is the commandment. That, that God said so the whole the whole Bible, you know, is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a precondition in that. Before you can love your neighbor, you must love yourself. Okay, mm -hmm. you must mm -hmm. love yourself. Mm -hmm. So we got a problem there. What's going on with ourselves that we're not loving where we can't love our neighbors? There's something going on. There's some hurt going on there, right? So then we have theologian Paul Tillich that says the first duty of love is to listen. All right, that's the first duty. So if we're not listening to people, that's telling us right off the bat that we're not loving them. But we're not loving them. We can't love them because we're not loving ourselves. We're not loving ourselves. Now, there are three things that researchers have identified that loved ones without color do not want to be called that impacts them very, very deeply, that they will fight and scratch to get away from. Loved ones without color, or anybody for that matter, do not want to be called murderers, do not want to be called child molesters, or racists. Okay. People, yeah, if you throw that R word around, yeah, people get pretty, pretty defensive. People get pretty defensive. But why do they get defensive on that word? Because intuitively, they know, and everyone knows, the history of this country and how evil it has been. 
It has been evil with slavery, with Jim Crow, with lynching, with the separation, just with how loved ones with color were treated was a very bad history, you know, part of our history of our country that was very terrible, that was very evil, and people know that. And because of that, he feel terrible about it. You know, that created an injury in our country that has never been healed. You know, after the Civil War, it wasn't healed. After the 1964-65 passages of the Civil Rights Laws, they were never healed. And the reasons why they were never healed is because there was never a repentance from it. We never repented from it. So, and so we, ne and, and part of, um, and part of repenting is confession. We never confessed for it. You know what I mean? And then people of color never got a chance to listen to that and then offer forgiveness. And then they accept that forgiveness that this country needs. There's never been a public apology. There's never been a repentance. There's never been a confession of all of those things that happened. And you know what? Intuitively, instinctively, we know that. And that has created an injury within us. And that injury has never been healed. Okay? And because that injury has never been healed, we feel condemned and we don't like ourselves. So when people bring up that word racism, all of that guilt comes out and we feel condemned. But the Bible says there is no condemnation in, love Je in, in the Lord Jesus. There's no condemnation, right? So in order to get past that condemnation, we need to start sharing our stories and we need to start listening. And through the listening is where the healing comes from because the the the, the fact that you don't listen reveals the injury. It reveals the injury. People aren't listening because they are hurt and they were trying to hang on to whatever good that they have left. You know, when my wife tells me, Steve, you hurt my feelings. And the first thing that I do is, no, no, you deny it. You deny it. I deny the fact that I hurt my wife's feelings. Why? And really, the, the denial is a good thing. So I want to change your mind on how you look at the denial, okay? The denial is really a good thing because what you're really saying is, I don't want to have hurt you like that. And for me to have hurt you like that hurts me. And you don't want to think that you're capable of doing something like that. So you say, no, no, I didn't. I don't want to hear it because you don't want to believe you're capable of doing that. And you don't want that to be true. So that's a good thing that you don't, the fact that you don't want it to be true is a good thing. So we need to hang on to that. Go ahead. So, so, but, and, and, and Reverend Steve, I, 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 look, I love the example because I think it is one that we all can relate to is that there are times where maybe we have missed the mark or we've been, um, uh, you know, less, less understanding with others, especially yeah. those to whom we love. So, but, but even if we took that example with, with you and your wife, right? Uh -huh. You may have said something, it, 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 it upset her, you hurt her feelings, right? And, and you come back and say, look, I'm really sorry. And, but what if in the event that your wife says, I'm not ready yet to forgive? How do yeah. we go about trying to not make others understand where we're coming from, but yeah. being able to say, look, I'm truly sorry. And, you know, that's all well and good. And I appreciate, I appreciate the, you know, the thoughtfulness and the understanding that, that yes, what you have said or what your actions or your deeds that you've done have actually hurt. But how do we reconcile with others 
when they themselves may not be ready or willing to to go that extra step or to be able to say right now i need i need my own time and i'm right, not right 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 a soft answer turns away wrath and you keep offering the the soft answer and you understand you begin to understand why they hurt you put yourselves in their shoes to understand why they hurt why they're hurting and then you continue going back i mean i did this the other night you know i've been married 21 years and over this time i've learned you know i said something the other day to my wife that hurt her feelings you know and uh and when she told me that I, you know I'm human. At first, I didn't want to hear it. You know, I, I pushed back. But then I went in the kitchen and I thought about it and I came back to her and I apologized. And she wasn't ready yet. So I'd go back in and I'd come back and I'd hug her again and say, hey, I'd say something to her. Then I'd go back in the kitchen and come back and say, hey. Then I came back and then I jumped on top of her and tried to kiss her. She was still pushing. But I just kept doing that until she warmed back up. You know what I mean? I kept doing it. And finally, finally, I apologized and said I was sorry and said, hey, you know, I put my foot in my mouth. I say stupid things all the time, honey. Please forgive me. You stay with it. You stay with it. You can't get your feelings hurt and then run away because now you got two people with hurt feelings. Right. But you stay with it. You understand where they're coming from and you keep you keep offering that kind word. You keep turning to the soft answer. You keep offering the soft answer over and over until they come around and they will come around. So so let's put this in perspective that, you know, for a lot of us, uh, let's say white clergy are, are, you know, we want to do this work. Uh, We have mostly a white congregation. Um, Perhaps, you know, we are in a situation where you can, if maybe you can do the right invitation, get other local um, houses of faith, Black House of Faith to do the work with you, but yep. let's just say your your congregation, like Rabbi and myself, have predominantly white congregations. Yes. Um, how how do you begin this work? Is it just can it work with just um, and a first? How do you get people interested in doing this work? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. so so how do, how does that work? So people just even show up to the seminar, the workshop, the meeting, you know, et cetera, the book study. Right. 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 You know. We have to take it easy. We have to take it easy on ourselves. You know, we got to get loved ones without color. Take it easy on yourself. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Yeah, you know, many things happen, but take it easy on yourself. Try to heal from this. You know, pursue your healing. That's that's the first thing I want to say to the people. Just take it easy on yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. You know, number one, and number two, we cannot underestimate prayer. Before we start working on these issues, we have to get, engage in prayer, you know? And then we have to engage in fasting as well. You know, the Bible says some things only come out through fasting and prayer, prayer and fasting. We have to utilize these spiritual disciplines and these spiritual tools that God has given us. So before we engage our congregations, the pastors and his staff first need to be involved in deep consecration, deep prayer you know, reading those scriptures that prompt you up, you know, that that prompt you up, that make you feel better, that gives you education, you know, that connects you with the spirit. Then you go to your congregation and you begin a time of fasting and prayer with them, right? And then after you finish that, you say, you know, we're going to start, um, we're going to start um, um, dealing with this phenomenon. And I don't even call it racism when I'm talking to groups. I call it a phenomenon, hmm. right? Using this soft language, language is very important. Dealing with this phenomenon, 
And then after you bring your congregations together, guess what you do? You listen to them. You allow them to vent. You allow them to share with you how they've been feeling about this phenomenon for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. You let them talk. And as they talk, you write this stuff down so they can see it because people are stressed to the hilt. They're maxed out in stress. And they've wanted an opportunity to talk about this to unload how they truly feel. You know, this is a, this is a no judgment zone when you allow people to talk and unload the stress that they have. Because people need, to, you know, loved ones without color, white people are damaged by racism and this division just as black people. We are all hurting. We are all damaged. We are all injured from this. So and when so you've people, seen this at work, what does that look like? So have you, have you been in a situation where it's mostly a white group, white congregation, you're helping them lead them through this? What, what, what does yeah. this look like? And what's it sound like? Oh, it sounds great. People are just talking and I'm listening. They're, people are happy that they get a chance to talk and share how they've been feeling. You know, when people talk and share, you know, what's been going on with them, it allows them to release the stress. For every word that comes out of your mouth, a corresponding amount of stress goes out with it, leaves out with it. So at the end of a person telling you how they've been feeling, at the end of them telling that, they're totally and completely stress-free. They've unloaded it. They've vented. It's not on them anywhere. And so after, you know, it leaves an, you know, when, when, when people communicate how they've been feeling, it leaves an opening. You, you've emptied yourself. And so now there's an opening and now they're ready to fill that opening. That opening. Number one, God is ready to fill it. Number two, it puts us in a, in a position to fill it with education. So, so when, after when, that, when, you start educating. All right. So when, yeah, so when people start unloading and let's say they start saying some stuff that if you had thin skin, would, would, might, you might find it kind of offensive. <laughs> you might find it or just um, maybe not true. You know, let's say they're just saying some things that they've been offended by, by blacks, and then they, you know, uh, they find they think it's reverse racism and um, blacks whine too much. They're playing the victim. I'm, a, I'm, I'm just frustrated about opening up the TV. And I, every time I look, I'm being told I'm a racist. Um, is there, so for your job, and I think the pastor job is not to try to rebuttal or when you said educate, what do you mean by educate? Because I'm sure what comes out of people's mouths is if you say it's no judgment zone, it's going to be no holds barred, right? The first duty of love is to listen. You don't say anything. You just let them talk. You let them speak their truth in love. In order to get this thing out, we have to share everything. You know, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. When people come and share at Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, they say everything. It's necessary that you say everything so you can unlock these secrets that you've been hiding and so you can reveal to the world what's been going on. Oh, I got a great story for that. Revealing what's to the world, what's been going on with you is a healing, is a spiritual act because it's a healing act, right? For example, um, Sabbath day is a healing act, right? Because it's a day of rest. What is it that makes the Sabbath day holy? It's not the fact that it's just, quote unquote, the Sabbath day and it's holy. No, it's holy because it's a day of rest. It's a day of healing. It's a day of rest. So when you talk, when you speak, that's healing. It's holy because you are getting a chance to heal by the things that you're unloading, unlocking all of these terrible secrets in your body that's causing you stress for all these years. You know what I mean? You get the chance to unlock that. 
And as you say that, you listen to the holiness that's coming out of their mouth. And the holiness that's coming out of their mouth is the healing that's taking place as they talk about these words, as they shed these words. So you don't respond at all. You just listen to them. So after all the listening, then what happens? Well, after all the listening, then you start asking questions. You start asking questions, right? And you, and, and, and you know, of course, when, 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 when you start sharing some of the things you kind of with, you don't share everything. You withhold the bad stuff, the real bad stuff. You start withholding that embarrassing stuff, right? So as you start asking questions, it gives them an opportunity to share on a different level, to start releasing those things that maybe in the first round they didn't talk about. It gives them a second round to start releasing those things. Okay. And but so but on this but, work, do you see this? I mean, I'm assuming this is not just like a single uh, uh, workshop that you do. You show up at a church, and do, I mean, I'm assuming you travel all over and you just yes. go to different religious and secular communities and lead yes. this work. And how yes. long are you there for this? Is this is this like a, a three day session, two day session? What does it look like? When I work with pastors, you know, I work with a lot of pastors in this work. You know, usually I work with them over a six week period. I'll come back once a week, and we will do a two or three hour session you know, over a six week period. With the pastor or with the congregation? With pastors. Oh, okay. Pastors, with pastors, yeah. But so you're training leaders. I train leaders, yeah. I'm, I'm a pastor's pastor as it relates to this subject. I'm a pastor's pastor. I train gotcha. leaders how to interact with their congregations, but I've interacted with a lot of groups and congregations as well. And this works on all levels. This works on all levels. And, you know, and when I teach, I teach through the Socratic method and the Socratic method is asking questions. Gotcha. So, you know, wait, so tell me, can you tell me, I remember one time you told me that you, you know how to speak cowboy. <laughs> You're surrounded oh yeah. by cowboys, right? And, yeah. and, and can you give an example, because we're nearing the end here, but I want people to hear about um, some, some of the hope in all this work, where maybe you came into a situation that seemed like it could be dicey and, you know, I'm more unsure if there's going to be, we're really going to get anywhere with this, uh, but that actually there was, there was change and transforming and hearing and listening and God's healing really did show up in regards to racial reconciliation. Yeah, all of my sessions, all of my sessions end that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. They all end in hope. Everybody walks out happy when I, at the end of my sessions, you know, because of, you know, when I go in there, the spirit of God goes in there with me and, and I go in with the spirit of love and, and, and I'm anointed to do this work because God has anointed me with the spirit of love. So when I come in a room, the spirit of love comes with me. The fruit of the spirit come in the room with me. And that's the only thing that I place in that room, right? And so the thing that really opens up people is the fact I ask people to communicate in feeling words. I ask people to get out of their minds and their intellect, to get in their heart through feeling words. I ask people to do that. I also ask people to, um, to, to, to talk, to just share. But then once people have talked and shared and they're learning how to use these feeling words, I begin to ask them those questions. And the question that opens everything up, that puts everyone at ease is, how do you feel? I ask people how they feel, how they feel. And then after we go through the whole thing of how they feel, then I start the education of, through a question, I ask people, what exactly is racism? And what people think it is and what it is, is totally different. And when they find out the true definition, the room goes like this. All the air lets out. All right, because so we got, most, two, we, got, we got three minutes left. Give us, give us, give us the, 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 the definition of racism that helps deflate 
and helps create the space for this conversation. Okay, the definition of racism is this. It is, <laughs> I wish we could have went through the story. It's race prejudice. That means seeing somebody with particular features, seeing their color, seeing somebody that's, that's different from you and having a judgment, prejudge. Prejudice means prejudge. You see something about them that has a particular color, a particular feature, and you judge them, okay? That is not racism. If you see a black person and, 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 and you call them a nigger, that is not racism. That's prejudice. You know, most people think racism is just something violent and being really mean to a person. No, that's not racism, that's prejudice. But racism is race prejudice plus power. That means you take the, the, the feature that you saw in a particular person, and then you have to have the power to deprive them of some rights or privilege. If you don't have the power to deprive somebody of a right or privilege, if a two-year-old baby called me a nigger, that is not racism. That is prejudice because that baby does not have the power to make me do nothing. Mm -hmm. It hurts my feelings. It's not the fruit of the spirit. It's not the spirit of God. It's none of that. But it's not racism. It's prejudice. Okay. So if that baby had the if that baby had the opportunity or the power to keep me from doing anything, then it would become racism. Okay? So this is That's so what it is. Steve has got a ton of good work to do, and, and, and just doing things like redefining and, and, and making clear what it is between prejudice and racism, simple things like that can help bring the air out and really allow people to see things differently and probably be more aware of what have I been involved with maybe prejudging and what have I been involved with actual racism. Yes, um, that's good. That's good. So, 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 so Reverend Steve, you know, before we, we close the show out, if people want to do this work, where can they find you? They can find me at usclo.com and all my contact information is there. Go to usclo.com, read about our work and my contact information is there. Email me, call me anytime. Uslo.com. We'll see you on the podcast. That's where the show notes will be. God bless.